It's time to breathe easier this allergy season with Breathe Right Nasal Strips. With instant nasal congestion relief for up to 12 hours, you can spend your time on your terms, not on your noses. Stuffy nose from outdoor allergens? No problem. We got you. Allergy season just turned into stripping season. Instant relief from nasal congestion anytime, anywhere. Need more convincing? Click the banner below and get a free sample. Breathe right. Get your strip on. Use as directed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Kelly Richardson Lawson. I'm a mother, a wife, and an entrepreneur. I started the Sunrise Project after our beautiful teenage son attempted to take his own life. Truth is, I'm tired. My husband and I felt despair, isolation, and immeasurable pain. I knew in my heart we needed a place for Black parents to share their struggles, find mutual support, and help our beloved children who struggle with mental wellness, addiction, or both. Each weekly podcast features an expert who shares their knowledge and takes questions from parents and children. Take me to the king. I don't have much to bring. The Sunrise Project allows Black families, like ours, to find comfort in knowing that we are not alone. While the purpose of the Sunrise Project is to share, support, and uplift, this conversation is not a substitute for medical advice. Finding the right healthcare professional for your family's specific needs is crucial. If you do not feel seen or heard, you should speak to more than one professional to find the right fit. Good morning, everyone, and welcome again to our Sunrise Project call. I'm so glad that we are all here together in this very moment um, for us to take time to find a moment of peace and solace as we work to heal ourselves and our children and our families, ultimately. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. This morning, we have back a wonderful resident expert of the Sunrise Project and friend, Dr. Rick Wallace, who is the founder and CEO and Chief Life Mastery Strategist at the Visionetics Institute. He's also the author of now 24 books, including one of his most recent books, which is called Academic Apartheid, Special Education, Disproportionality Against Black Boys and More. All of his books are incredible, actually. Um, Dr. Wallace created the Visionetics concept for optimal personal development based on nearly three decades of academic study, research, and experience in several areas. And he is one of the leading minds in the area of personal change, achieving an exceptional rate of success with his clients. Uh, today, Dr. Wallace is going to be exploring the family component and how our family dynamics affect mental health and addiction, particularly around young Black males. We all know that family connections are essential, and the uniqueness of the Black experience has created this huge dilemma 
in many of our uh, Black families, particularly the Black family nucleus. And so Dr. Wallace is here to explore that and to help share some nuggets as we're all on this journey for healing ourselves and our families. So welcome back, Dr. Wallace. So grateful that you're here today. Oh, I definitely appreciate it. It is always an honor. And I'm just a person that's passionate about what I do. I'm excited about being here to talk about what we are going to discuss today. I think it's immensely important. Anybody who has followed me for any stretch of time knows that I'm immensely passionate about uh, the restoration of the Black family nucleus, as I refer to it often, uh, and the role it plays in the development of our people, especially our youth. And when we talk about matters as significant as uh, addiction and mental illness, I think that it is a beautiful thing to have this discussion about family in its many forms. And I think it's important to understand that because I think that we can become constrained by the definition of family. And I think that can be frustrating in and of itself because when we can't get what we feel we need from the quote unquote traditional family, we feel alone. And the thing is, no one has to be alone. And I hope that by the time we finish this discussion, that's the one thing that I would really want people to understand is that you're never in a situation where you have to be alone. There's always someone out there that's willing to engage you at a level that is going to be uh, conducive to your healing, conducive to your growth uh, and the expansion of your potential. Some things I wanna share with you immediately just to give some context. Uh, to the discussion so you can be aware of what we're talking about and why family is so important. There's a complex nature of the family dynamic that we must be aware of. And when that family dynamic is less than functional or even dysfunctional, we see a bunch of problems arising out of it. And we'll get into that briefly. Uh, in order to understand the power of the family to function as a healing bomb, which is immensely immeasurable. It cannot be articulated, the gravity of family and the importance of family in healing, in uh, establishing of one's self-image and all of the things that are gonna determine just how successful a person is. Family is huge, but that must be an assumption, again, that the family is functional for that to happen. So we'll, we'll get into that. Then there was the challenge of how are we gonna squeeze the conversation of addiction and mental health into one hour long discussion. And that was pretty simple. And we see a rise in this term now being that there's a rise in an opioid epidemic that, that is primarily impacting non-Blacks. We move away from the word addict and drug addiction to substance use disorders. Well, the truth of the matter is addiction has always been an illness. It was never a moral failure. It was never a situation where it was because you didn't have a moral turpitude, you didn't have the self-discipline. It was always uh, an illness that should have been treated as such. And now we see it, so now we understand it. And that's extremely important because how we deal with those in our families who are suffering uh, with an addiction is important. And, and, and the first thing you need to understand is you can't approach them as if you just made a dumb choice and you continuously know they're suffering with an illness. And as with any other illness, there's a process of treating and a process of healing that has to take place 
and confronting them from your perspective is not the way that that's done. It's time to breathe easier this allergy season with Breathe Right Nasal Strips. With instant nasal congestion relief for up to 12 hours, you can spend your time on your terms, not on your noses. Stuffy nose from outdoor allergens? No problem. We got you. Allergy season just turned into stripping season. Instant relief from nasal congestion anytime, anywhere. Need more convincing? Click the banner below and get a free sample. Breathe right. Get your strip on. Use as directed. Next, I want to share with you some numbers, and then we'll get into the meat of this discussion, and then we'll open up for questions. Anybody wants to stop me to ask a question, please do. We make up roughly about 13.4% of the population, which pretty much uh, equates to 46 million now. That is minus the 2.7% uh, that identifies multiracial. Um, that can be a, an entirely different discussion at another time in and of itself. But according to census data, this is important. 55% of Blacks currently live in the South. Why is that important? Racial microaggressions. Racial microaggressions are going to have a massive impact on mental stability, emotional stability, how one copes, what one thinks of themselves, and so many other things. So that's important. 55% over half of uh, blacks reside in an area that's traditionally hostile towards blacks. Keep that in mind. Uh, this really blew my mind because I talk about the poverty line a lot and it, 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 it totally blew my mind to look deep into it. One in five, that's 20% live in poverty. So 20% live in poverty. Here's the thing. Poverty is defined as for an individual, $12,760,000 a year. For a family of four, which includes two children, $26,200. There were two things that jumped out at me when I read that. First and foremost, who can survive on $12,000 a year? That was the first thing. That's not a living, that's not even close to a living wage. That's, so the poverty line is cut so low to make the numbers look better for certain people who are part of the powers that be. But we could really take that individual number at 26,000 and say it would be tough for the average person to live off of that. But we're talking about an entire family. That was the first thing. The second thing was we have 20% of our people living at or below it. Again, mental health and addiction is going to have an impact on that. Blacks who are living at or below the poverty line are more likely to report psychological distress than those who are living at two times above the poverty rate. Blacks are more likely to experience sadness, hopelessness, and worthlessness. Suicide. Blacks are less likely to die from suicide, but we have an issue amongst our youth where our teens over the last 10 years have increased from 6.1% to 9.8% in uh, suicidal ideation, they have also increased in that we, as a rate, a prevalence rate, are at 9.8% versus 6% in comparison to white teens. So while more white teens are either, uh, at the very least, considering suicide, the rate at which they're doing it is less than Blacks, which is the prevalence is 9.8. So you have fewer Blacks doing it, that's because we have fewer Blacks, but the prevalence means impact. Prevalence means impact, and so the impact that that has on the Black community is substantial. But I want to touch on something that really blew, blew my mind about a year and a half ago. 
uh, I kept hearing about young babies uh, committing suicide, young black babies, specifically young black girls. And so I looked into it and one rate that we actually are at the top in suicides is age five to 11. And so that's something we, when we start thinking about mental problems and addictions, everything, we're thinking about our teens. We're, we're never thinking that our younger babies are going through stress. Well, social media has opened it up. Now children aren't, children used to have the sanctuary of home where you go to school and even if school, you're getting bullied and horrible, you come home, you're safe. Now you're being bullied in the home because we have social media. We have the internet, so there's no safe space. So now I come home and it's probably worse because now no teacher to intercede and I can't put the phone down, but I'm study seeing the bombardment of what's being said about me. And so we need to deal with that. And then we have uh, one final thing, the history of racial adversity and those macro and microaggressions. We can start with reconstruction, and the devastating uh, impact it had on Blacks in the South. We can go from there to Black codes that did everything from forbid Blacks to own property, uh, to limit what industries Blacks could work in, which meant that uh, there was a high percentage of unemployed Blacks. Then the criminalization of vagrancy, which meant you didn't have a job and you couldn't prove you were gainfully employed, meant that you were going to end up being arrested and you, it was a felony. So you could literally end up doing anywhere up to 12 years for it. And then convict leasing, which meant while you were incarcerated, you were going to be leased back out to plantation owners that you had been freed from. Uh, and we can go on to redlining, which was discrimination or uh, exclusion by means of race. Redlining meant you could not get financing uh, to live in communities that were upward of uh, uh, fluent or upwardly mobile. So you were basically stuck in impoverished conditions and uh, stressful conditions, regardless of the fact that you may have been able to afford to move out uh, and put your family in a safer position. So that meant, again, Black children were growing up in hostile conditions when it may not have been necessary. And we can go on down the line to mass incarceration, gentrification, and a bunch of other things that we're still experiencing. So now we're at this point uh, where we understand that what is most important when I talk about mental health or when I talk about addiction is that we have to first and foremost understand that uh, we have to view our reality from an Afrocentric perspective our experience in the United States and our experience in the world in general is unique, but definitely in the United States. The history of child slavery alone creates a very unique uh, ex historical experience that frames our psychology, that frames our sociology, that frames our perception and perspective of how things happen. The fact that more Blacks experience depression and hopelessness and a sense of worthlessness is directly attached to that set slavery experience and all of the hostility that followed. One would assume the way that everyone talks about slavery was 150 years ago, one would make the assumption that, okay, when we were freed, we were given equal footing. When we were freed, we were set up with everything we needed to thrive, that we were never held back, that there were no more aggressions, there were no more traumatic re-injuries or new traumatic injuries that followed, and that's not the case. And, and then you see this over and over again, and it's a generational uh, reality. Now you're starting to say to yourself, okay, at what point do we heal? And it's going to be a family endeavor because 
those on the outside, while they give the illusion or the idea that they are engaged and invested, are not engaged and invested at a level that will produce true healing and empowerment. It's not in their best interest. We have to understand that no matter where we sit, no matter where we operate, if the powers that be had really truly decided that we were going to put Black people in a position to empower themselves, it could have been done a long time ago. So we have to understand that while some of us have been immensely successful in navigating this labyrinthine corridor of this racial caste system, the truth of the matter is, as evidenced by the poverty numbers, the most of our brothers and sisters have not. And what has that done to uh, mental health and addiction and, 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 all of the, uh, and all of the things that are associated with that? It has left us in a place where we are producing results where we find ourselves uh, at the bottom of the, the bottom rung of the socioeconomic ladder in almost every measurable and meaningful statistical category. And that's how everybody in this country, whether we want to admit it or not, is judged on success, is where are you at on the socioeconomic level, which is in and of itself a problem too, because we aren't asking how are you emotionally. We aren't judging your, your success by how fulfilled you are. You know, what do you drive? Where do you live? You know, um, you know do you have a six-figure or a seven-figure income? And so everybody's striving for something that may not even be meaningful to them, and then to see that they are never closing the gap because everybody's measuring themselves against the standard. And unfortunately, in a Eurocentric reality, the standard is Eurocentric. So based off of them, where are we? Well, we can't start that. We have to start where are we each and initially in our own enclave. So let's call the enclave family. Now, for there's the traditional family. And I tell my clients all the time, I have... For the most part of me saw that you're born into one circle. That's the circle you inherit. And then you build the next one. You build the next one off of what you need to be fulfilled. You build the next one off of what's going to be, who's going to fan my flames? Who's going to fan my flames? Who's going to be the person who will encourage me when I'm down? Who's going to be the person who will actually see something in me I don't see in myself and feel so strongly about it that when I can't even see it and I'm ready to lay it down, they come along and say, no, you will not. Who will be that person that you can sit up and actually think about 10 years down the line that is gone, long gone, but their words are still resonating in your mind because their love for you was genuine? Well, see, you get to go pick those people. That's the beautiful thing about this family thing is there are going to be a few people that come out of this family that you inherit, that love you unconditionally. And, you know, I'm not going to give them names because sometimes it's not that person. But what I will tell you is there'll be a couple that will come out. Don't become discouraged because of the fact that you don't have a whole bunch of people in this circle. The beautiful thing is they are wonderful and beautiful and awesome people out there. This particular show is a testament to that. And there are people out there that do literally live their lives to pour into other people. Find them, make them a part of your periphery, your immediate circle. Let someone pour into you, learn how to be in a healthy relationship because that's where you're gonna find help. And so when I talk about family, I would love for it to be the traditional family. And I think that there's a need for it because a traditional family is where we first teach values, interests, and principles 
to the youth. That's where they're going to first encounter it. But we can't get caught up in a situation where there's a cycle of brokenness and expect the brokenness to heal itself. So then we have to find a way to literally infuse that second family into the first dynamic. And that's the beauty of this thing. And that's where my passion is. Okay, I don't want to say your family's dysfunctional, screw your family. Your family is in a place of crisis. You can't do anything for family until you find your way out of it and break the cycle. You're going to break the cycle with the new family, the family that you encounter in school, you know, that roommate that becomes a lifelong friend from college, the uh, person who becomes a friend from work on your first job, your second job, or, you know, the person you meet at the gym, all these different places where we tend to be antisocial is the place we may need to open up because there are people out there and they don't all look like us. That's something that as a person who's so pro-Black that I really had to embrace because I pushed so much help away because I didn't want it from people who didn't look like me because I had made up in my mind I couldn't trust them. And when I actually go back, I'll be honest with you, and I have no problem being honest uh, because those friends are still friends and they understand my love for my people and they understand it's unapologetic. But I'll tell you, I've had more help from them than I've had from my own. Again, you've got to create this family based off of the ones who are willing. We spend way too much time trying to convince people to be what they're not capable of being. And so that's the first step is finding a space that's healthy, being able to be in a situation where people are pouring into you. Now, understand this, someone pouring into you, someone loving you, someone encouraging you is not the same as someone enabling you. And that's an understanding. We have a lot of people who want people to just co-sign whatever they're doing and tell them you're going to be okay. No, if you keep going, you're going to crash. And because I don't want you to crash, sometimes we're going to clash because I don't want to see what I see happening. And there, but the thing about it is people who love you have that patience. That's that healing bomb. The first, to me, the first component of healing, when you talk about healing bomb is patience because without it, I'm telling you, you know what? Forget this. I'm out. That's about, a, you know, after I see two or three times, I tell my kids all the time, you look, I love you. Because if it was based on me liking you, y'all would be in trouble. But the love says, chill. Number one is you are in a different space than they are. And so to both sides of this equation, to the parent, the loved one, the friend who's trying to touch someone who's in a place of hurt, you got to understand you're seeing through a lens that they're not seeing through. And in order to be a help to them, you have to be willing to come to where they're at. They're the one that's in a position where they can't function. You're the one that's supposed to be able to have reason. It's your patience, it's your understanding, and it's your commitment. Patience, understanding, and commitment. In, now, there's a bunch of different variables that go all in there and makes this unbelievable, uh, I guess, soup or something, whatever you want to call it. But it's all those. But you got to have patience. You got to have understanding and you got to have commitment. You've got to be willing to be patient with someone. Give them the space they need to be in process. Matter of fact, give them permission to be in process. I tell people all the time, everybody wants to promise. You know, if you talk about 
uh, my religious family, and I'm not talking about my blood family, I'm talking about all the people I love who are religious. They talk more on promises. If you get the people who have sort of disconnected from religion or never been religious, they talk more about the prize. So the pro promise and the prize to me are the same thing. It's just a different way of looking at it. But what I can tell you is that the process always precedes the prize and the promise. And in life, where if you never experience any significant issues with mental illness, if you never have to confront an addiction, you're still going to have process after process after process that you have to endure. And the moment you start thinking you can have the promise without the process, you have problems. Same thing for a person who's going through a, a mental health crisis or an addiction. They are trying to get to the prize or the promise. And you've got to give them a chance to move through the process. You've got to encourage them in the process. You've got to let them know that there are steps in the process. And you've got to be there to be that, 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 that uh, support system in word, in presence, being a listening ear, and even in helping them seek help at a higher level. All of these are things that are part of this. But I'm telling you, when it comes down to it and what I've experienced, it's time to breathe easier this allergy season with Breathe Right Nasal Strips. With instant nasal congestion relief for up to 12 hours, you can spend your time on your terms, not on your noses. Stuffy nose from outdoor allergens? No problem. We got you. Allergy season just turned into stripping season. Instant relief from nasal congestion anytime, anywhere. Need more convincing? Click the banner below and get a free sample. Breathe Right. Get your strip on. Use as directed. In, in all of this, the greatest part of this healing dynamic is presence. It is saying that when you need me, I'm here. And presence without judgment, presence that sits up and says no matter where, because see, it's easy in either one of these situations to slip into a place where now you are so embarrassed, you don't wanna expose yourself to anybody. And when you isolate, it gets worse. So you need to have, uh, as a person who's going to be the healing bomb, you've got to have this place that you provide that's without judgment. This is the place you come in. You can just bring it all right here. And if we got to get someone else that we trust to come in and help Barrett, we're going to do it, but we're never going to put you in a situation where you can't say, look, you know what I did? Or you know what I'm thinking, or you know, because there's a lot of people having suicidal ideations but won't share it with anybody because they know people are gonna judge them, because they know people are gonna tell them, come on, man up. You're better than that. Or you know what? I can't shake this alcohol, uh, this this urge uh uh to 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 run the alcohol. Every time I get stressed out, I'm grabbing something. Man, you just to put that down. The idea that it's a decision or a moral failure has put us in a situation where we can't be help. We can't be of assistance because we're not understanding a, 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 a pull that's so much stronger than a mere impulse. Then there's so many other things that are going to play and you know, maybe they'll come out during the question and answer phase of this, this discussion. But you gotta understand also, when we start talking about our babies, they're still developing, even into their teen years, they're still developing mentally, emotionally, psychologically. And so their vulnerability to both 
depression and mood swings and uh, the hormone uh, volatility that takes place as you move through puberty and the adolescence, all these things make them more vulnerable, more susceptible to the pulls of uh, a mental health crisis, especially when we talk about mental health in the area of depression. It can even move off into, and you have to understand, just because you're depressed don't mean you're having suicidal ideation, but it can definitely lead there, especially when there's a level of hopelessness where that doesn't seem like there's going to be an answer and where we have developed over time an understanding that perseverance produces results. You have to remember children haven't had that kind of time to develop a history they can refer back to and see 15 times where it was worse than it is now and they got through it. To them, they're going through that that first breakup. You know, something as simple as that first breakup. Oh my God, it's devastating. I don't want to go to school. I don't want to get out of bed. Oh my God, what happened to me? And 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 if there's not something to give perspective to, if there's not something to bring them in and understand and not come at them, are you tripping? Because I can recall my first breakup, and I'm in there and I'm going, wow, and I'm sitting in my room, and my grandfather walks in. Boy, it's going to be 40 more like that. Just get over it and move on. And I'm, you know, and I'm looking, I'm thinking about it, thinking about it. The rest of it's like, oh my God, dude, what were you doing? But that's, that, that was where he was coming from. That's what he is. He was giving an experience. Look, man, you know, this is, that's the beginning. Get over it. But that's not what we need to be doing because the children that are growing up now aren't growing up in the same reality that we grew up in. They have a lot more pressures. There's a lot more pressure to perform and rise on them. Uh, a lot of things are hyper magnified that wasn't then. We now see every murder, every situation, every racial hostility. It's not just what we experience anymore. We get to live it for everybody else because it's flashed on social media. There's this constant uh, stress uh, of dealing with uh, expectations for our young girls. Uh, something uh, came out. Uh, Marion and I had actually been doing research on it and talking about it for a couple of years that Facebook literally had done research and had documentation that showed that Instagram was harmful to teenage girls. It showed that there was a problem. And the problem is there's an image being presented that our girls are trying to adhere to. There is an idea being presented that the, you, 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 only, you don't need substance in life. You just need to be beautiful. And what happens when a girl is looking at this idea of beauty and doesn't see how she can achieve it? Even the ones who feel like I can do this makeup thing and I can achieve it, then find out that it's not all cracked up to be. That's why you find the moment that an inst some Instagram influencer loses a certain amount of followers for whatever reason, suicide. That has been a common thing. That's what actually got Marion and I in, in my attention was why are these uh, Instagram influencers killing themselves. It's because of the level of pressure that's put on them to be something that they probably would have never even desired to be if it wasn't there. And we didn't have that. You know, we had our own version, you know, television, but shoot, it was easy. Our parents controlled the television. What's that on? Turn that off. That's right. And it was one TV in the house. Right. And so now everybody has a device. And on that device, it used to be you can control. Okay, you're not going here. You're not going there. I don't know that parent, so you can't go over there. So you knew where your kids were. You knew what kind of people they were exposed to. So you had a greater level of control. Now the enemy comes in your house via device. And you're fighting this image thing, this self-esteem thing, 
you're fighting it on a regular basis because you're competing with something where you're trying to work and take care of the family and they got something that's in front of them the entire time they're awake. And so all of these things play a role. I'm going to sort of back down now. I'm going to open up if somebody who wants to come on verbally and ask questions. We can move into that segment. Yeah, so this was super helpful. Uh, the stats are sobering. And I love what you talked about in terms of patience, understanding, and commitment. And I'd love to just, before uh, we have callers ask questions, how do people, parents, really focus on the understanding piece when there is not understanding of, you know, if someone is smart, starting to explore, you know, certain drugs or vaping or, you know, marijuana, whatever it is. How do you stay in a space of understanding and patience when we as parents uh, are concerned? Like you said, we don't have control, very different than our parents. And um, how do you recommend or what are some tips that would help us stay in a space of patience, understanding, and commitment, I think, is there. But the understanding piece, I think a lot of us may be struggling with. I think patience and understanding is always the issue. I think that the, the average parents has the commitment, but the patience and the understanding is, and sometimes I think understanding needs to precede patience because patience comes from understanding, I think, sometimes. Some people are just built for it, you know, like, you know, I'm not going to let that stress me out. So how do we get there? I think it's the question how uh, in a situation where we lack control. And I think that's the biggest part of parenting now is that most of us grew up in a parenting environment where there was, if not absolute control, I mean, a predominant control. I grew up in absolute control. I didn't get any vote on anything until I was out of the house. Then I had all the votes I wanted. That was the rule. When you want to vote, you move. And, and so that was it. And I didn't rule with an iron fist to that level with my older children, but it was definitely, this is my house. These are my rules. There are no variations. And it was that simple. And now there's this idea that, you know, it, it's so many different things that come at parents that the kids actually feel like, you know, do what you want to do. I'll figure it out. I'm like, really? I have to make your sandwiches in the morning and you're going to figure this out. But in their mindset, because everybody's telling them it's that easy, they believe it is. Here's the thing that 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 has to happen. For once, in 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 we're in a generation now where we're going to have to acknowledge we don't have dominant control. The first thing is awareness. You make the prayer every time you start the meeting, Lord. You know the serenity prayer. I need to know the things I can change and have the courage to do it. But I need to be aware of the things I can't change and understand that I can't. If I can't change it, if I can't force it to happen then how do I handle it? How do I do it? How do I remain influential in it? And that's where the understanding thing pops back in. Okay, what I find in, 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 in this generation of, let's say, young adults and teens is if they feel they can trigger you, trigger you they'll do it. It's almost like they get a kick out of it. So like if they find out that you're trying to get them to do something and them not doing it sends you somewhere, they'll do it because now they are experiencing power. It's thwarted and it's crazy, but they, they'll do it. So the first thing you can't do is you can't let them know that what they're doing has you in a place. Because 
you know, depending on the age and how the relationship has always been, this idea of now I'm in control can be in and of itself addictive. So you got to sit up and remain calm. Sometimes you got to pull yourself back and you got to talk yourself down. And then you got to really say, am I listening and really engaging this to understand or am I just trying to control it because I don't like it? And that's the hard part for us because we've developed our idea of what's right and what's morally right, what's socially acceptable, all these things that we know these kids are going to face and be viewed and judged upon that they're not considering. But am I going to be effective in being influential by simply trying to impose my perspective and my point of view? And the answer is in almost every case, no. Uh, most kids at that age are trying to impose or superimpose their will. They're okay. trying to prove that they are their own person uh, and that they can make some decisions on their own. And this is the what I call in my house the oh my God face. I hear oh my God all the time because, well, no, you're not doing oh my God. No, that doesn't make sense. Oh my God. Oh my. So it's always oh my God. But I call it, but the thing is, I follow up with that well. Hey, come here. Let's let's talk about it. Or let's you want to go eat? And okay, talk to me. So tell me why you feel that way. Tell me why it's important to you. And I ended by saying, okay, I'm gonna think about it. And I'm going to follow up the I'm gonna think about it with actually thinking about it and saying, okay, where were you at, Rick, where you were 15? And I'm going like, okay, I couldn't communicate it to my parents. But I was thinking it. And when I got away to a space where they weren't looking, I dibbled. Okay, so how do we bring them back in and show them? It's going to be really understanding and exposure. How can you expose them to things without them feeling like you're pushing yourself on them? It's, that's the thing. And it's a little easier when they're in the home. Because it's little things that you can just do. Say, man, look at it. Look what I just saw. Look what I read. Look, you know, whatever. And each kid is different. And a parent knows their kid. They know how they can approach their kid. They know what their kid will look at. You know, it's just certain things I can go with my kids at. And then I'm trying to hear it. Oh, he comes. Oh, my God. But and then the other things is, I mean, check this out. And then they come run in and they look at it. Or, you know, like they're walking by and it's something I really want them to hear. I'll just turn it up. I know they're walking by and they're not going to stop, but you're going to hear it for five seconds. And then, you know, I go back and to, uh, doing what I'm doing and paying attention to what I'm paying attention to. But that's what we have to do because you got to understand you're, com you're competing with a device that's bombarding them with their thinking. They're not thinking critically. They're not thinking unilaterally. They're thinking based off of what's being been bombarded into their subconscious or their psyche. And you got to find a way to, to uh, counter that with as much frequency as possible just to have a chance. But in, in short, the combination of understanding and patience sort of works together. Uh, when you're not having enough patience, try to develop more understanding. When you need more understanding and don't know where to get it, try to have more patience and be willing to ask and be willing to hear and listen without that, that again, that no judgment zone. This is that moment you can just tell me whatever you're thinking and there are no negative repercussions. I'm not going to go off on you. I'm not going to take something from you. I really need to know how you feel because that's going to be important also in mental health where they really need to say, I'm feeling sad. I'm not feeling my best. But if they feel like every time I tell you something, you're judging me 
or every time you find out something, you're judging me, then I, I can't trust that. And so then you lose the ability to be that impacting force. That's super helpful. I think the listening piece so critically important and the no judgment zone. So many of us are judging. There's a question. When do you get to the point of saying it's time to go? How do you balance control, understanding and letting go? That is a very interesting question because there's no set point that you can sit up and say, when this happens is when you do it. For every person, it's different. Uh, You have to know your breaking point or your threshold, I guess is a better word. You have to know your your pain threshold uh, of what you can and cannot deal with and accept. And you have to know when you've reached it and you have to be disciplined enough at that time to say, I've done everything that I can. I don't see any meaningful change or any potential for meaningful change. And so I'm in an empty endeavor that I need to remove myself from. That's a part of life. Anytime you're engaged in something and it doesn't produce results, it's your responsibility to remove yourself from it when there's no uh, indication that there's going to be growth at any point that can be reasonably uh, projected. Every person that's going to be different so this isn't one of those situations where you say, well, if you're committed, you're committed. Just you, you get in there because there are people who are in a place that you can't pull them out of. Even if it's not their intent, they will pull you down with them. You have to be aware of that as well, because you can't help anybody if you are down in the pit also. And you have to know when you've reached the edge and now you're at the edge of the pit. And if you're not careful, you'll get pulled in. And it's very common. I've seen parents start drinking, start abusing drugs because they were in such a battle of dealing with their kids going through it that they became addicted uh, to different things. And it can happen. So there is no set point, but it does require a high level of personal awareness. And that's something that everybody should be investing themselves in anyway, understanding yourself, understanding what you like, what you don't like, understanding when and where things happen where you know, okay, I'm at the edge. Get familiar with what that feels like. So when you know, you know, when you're there, make a notation of it, make a mark. Okay, if I do this, you know, and, you know, I don't get a result by this time, or if I do this and 15 times in and is still no results. I mean, you have to have something that you're sitting up and saying, okay, I'm getting results or I'm not getting results. What am I going to do about it? It shouldn't be a lifelong endeavor of no progress. That's super helpful. Thank you. This is Dr. Linda McGee. Good morning, family out there. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the issue that you spoke about, about racial trauma and Mm -hmm. how cumulative it is and intergenerational it is. But here's the, the, the issues that I confront with parents. One is, uh, you know, merely simply just denying that the parents themselves are carrying around um, the aftermath of racial trauma. And then two, there's a minimization in terms of, well, everybody's going through it except black. And so, you know, it doesn't matter and kind of trying to minimize the trauma that their children have by saying, you know, they have it much easier. And then to, to sort of go through situations where parents are saying, 
that because of their economic strata, because they've attained a certain status, that racial trauma doesn't really apply to them. So in terms of me working with parents, those are three of the things that I see, denial, minimization, and saying that they are insulated from it. And I'm just wanting to see how you deal with this, if you see this, and, and what your comments are. All right, thank you uh, so much uh, for chiming in. What you're talking about in totality is the normalization of trauma. And when you normalize something, you make it the standard. We, we deal with life on, th on something called norms and standards. It, it, it triggers our conscious on whether we feel bad about something. It tells us when we're in a space we shouldn't be. It tells us whether we should feel bad. It's that all of this is built on a normalization. So when you normalize trauma, you begin to, uh, as was stated, minimize it because everybody, if you're black, is going through it. And think about it. Uh, Dr. Cleo uh, Monago and myself were uh, on and we were talking about the need to break the chains of dependency on, on whiteness. And one of the things that he, he made a point on is that we as parents, and we can go back generation after generation, and we have told our children generation after generation that you're going to have to be two and three times better than your white counterpart in order to get equal footing. And what we fail to explain to them is that it's not because of something you did. It's not your fault. And, and when you have to explain why, now you got to talk about the trauma. You got to talk about the fact that it's not equal footing. And not only are we dealing with generational trauma, but we're dealing with re-injury. We're dealing with a consistent re-injury in so many different ways that we can talk about across the board that can be statistically measured, that can be reviewed. And this is one of the reasons why there's this, this, this big push against quote unquote critical race theory because and, and the broadening of what the idea is because it's an actual legal examination of the institutions in this country. And that can be measured. And so what they want to make it about is just, oh, it's just another way of playing the race card. No, that's what you want to do because you want to money the waters. But we need to talk about what, what was mentioned early is this generational trauma. How is it passed down? And the thing you have to understand is if tra trauma isn't confronted, trauma isn't mitigated. If we don't teach and integrate what we call traumatic memory, if we don't teach ourselves, literally, in each individual who, have, who has experienced trauma, and I haven't met a Black person yet who hasn't, if we don't teach ourselves how to integrate those traumatic memories, they keep triggering and they keep creating the reliving of the event, not the memory, the reliving of. There's a difference. And so the first thing is to understand that that is there. Then you have to integrate it. Then you have to mitigate it. And we're not doing that. So what happens if you don't integrate? you got someone reliving their trauma, raising kids. So just under the basic understanding of social learning theory, what's going to happen when you got a trauma-ridden person rearing children? Those children are going to become traumatized and nothing more than by practice. I always give the example of if you've got a mother who's riding alone, sitting at a light, minding her own business, doing nothing on sitting at a red light, someone jumps a curve, runs over, hits her car, tears her car, causes bodily harm, She's traumatized by it. 
Now she develops an anxiety of sitting at red lights because that's a part of the traumatic memory. That's a part of the traumatic experience. But now she has children. So every time she puts up at a red light, she starts to sweat. She starts to get nervous. She starts to get jittery and jumpy. She's edgy. Those kids are picking up that energy. They have no clue why. But they know now, To they've practiced now. When we pull up to a red light, we get antsy, we get jumpy, we get fidgety. Now you're living a trauma and don't even have an explanation for it. You don't have a point of reference for it. How do you deal with it? And nobody's talking about that. So you got a bunch of people who've been told that their trauma is normal, that that's just a part of the black experience without explaining that, no, you, you do have to do this and you have to go through this and you are going to have microaggressions. You're going to deal with all this, but that's because of how they set things up. It's nothing wrong with you. It's okay to say it's there. It's okay to talk about it. It's okay to acknowledge that this isn't how I should have to live. Even though I do have to live this way, this isn't how I should have to live. And so that now I can calibrate based off of the fact that it's not anything wrong with me in the sense of what's wrong with this nation. But it is something wrong with me in the sense that I'm having to, to, to manage this. And there has to be an outlet to manage it and, for, and, and anybody will tell you if you don't have to be an expert at anything, that if you don't acknowledge it, you can't cope with it. Acknowledgements. There's time for this one last question, I believe that's in the chat, and then we will close out. It says, how do you address or accept your kids' friends who are bad influences? Oh, wow. In the old days, you just simply said, you're not allowed to hang around. And that was it. You got caught around them. It was consequences and repercussions. And, and, and now it's about communication. It's about setting boundaries and consequences. And the idea of being understanding doesn't mean there are consequences. One thing that I make it a point uh, to do with my children, from the oldest at 36 to the youngest at seven, who thinks she's 30, that there are consequences to your actions. So when you're supposed to do something that you don't do or you do something you're not supposed to do, I'm gonna make sure from the position I'm sitting in that there's a consequence associated with it. The last thing I want you to do is go out into the world and think that you can do anything you want because you wanna do it and there are no consequences because the consequences that the world brings to you will be far more severe and longer lasting than the ones that you're experiencing here. So I'm going to apply consequences. If I see you around that person, I'm taking the phone. If I see you around that person, I'm going to limit your ability to leave home on your own. If I see you around that person, I'm going to do this. Now, I want you to have freedom. I want you to be able to get out of this. You need to have that bridge between where you're totally protected by me and you develop the capacity to go out in this society and function on your own. But I'm going to be very protective in that process of transition. So you need to understand that in this house, if I see you doing something, I can't stop you from doing it, but I can during your control what happens afterward. And that's it. I mean, you, you being an understanding parent and listening without judgment does not mean sitting up and co-signing everything your child does. That's not what that means. It means I want to hear you. I want to know why you think it's a good idea. You know, enlighten me because now you're giving your child a voice. That's something I didn't have as a child was a voice. So you're giving your child a voice, but it doesn't mean that because you have a voice, you have the last say-so. No, in life, you're not going to have the last say-so. You can start your own business, and you're still going to have somebody you have to answer to. 
So the idea that you can just do whatever you want and there are no consequences and no, you, you have no accountability, that's not the case. So you definitely have to assess accountability. Excellent. All of this has been tremendously helpful uh, as a mom of two teenage sons, one who's out of the house and one who's in the house. So um, a lot of words of wisdom to practice. Uh, people are saying, amen, amen. Yes, absolutely. All of that. Um, super helpful. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for being here this morning with us. I know we could go on for hours talking about multiple issues. And unfortunately, we don't have that today, but we would love to have you back to explore um, some of the things that we just touched on today. So really powerful, very helpful information. Uh, and appreciate you being part of our village, Dr. Wallace. So thank you again for it's sharing your honor. time this morning. It's an absolute honor. And thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So with that, uh, we will have Kelly Chapman uh, close us out with a prayer. So thank you again, everyone. And we'll be back next week. Lord, we come to you today with thankful and grateful hearts. We are grateful that you called us to be parents. And you also allow us the opportunity to place the entire burden in your hands. You give us the opportunity to go through the process, but you also give us the gift of your presence. You said that you would never leave us nor forsake us. So today we take one more step to place our burdens in your hands. By putting it in your hands, we can develop patience. By putting it in your hands, we can see our situation and our family members with loving eyes and with a loving and understanding and committed heart. By putting it in your hands, we can become more committed to our families, extending more grace with consequences and more love to each member. Finally, you said in all thy getting, get understanding. You said though it cost all you have, get understanding. So we thank you in advance for understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, Kelly uh, and everyone. And thank you so much. That was awesome. Uh, grace with consequences. I'm going to take that with me today uh, and all of what I heard today. I really appreciate you being here and for everyone being here today. Patience, understanding, commitment. And as Kelly just said, grace with consequences. So thank you all. Appreciate it. We'll be back uh, next week. I'm Kelly Richardson Lawson, and you've been listening to the Sunrise Project podcast. You can follow Sunrise wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't yet, open your podcast app and follow this show. Join us next week for another gathering of support. Thank you for listening. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental wellness challenges, contact your doctor, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or both. You can reach NAMI's helpline at 800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, or email at info at NAMI.org. Volunteers are working to answer questions, offer support, and provide practical next steps. It's time to breathe easier this allergy season with Breathe Right Nasal Strips. With instant nasal congestion relief for up to 12 hours, you can spend your time on your terms, not on your noses. Stuffy nose from outdoor allergens? No problem. We got you. Allergy season just turned into stripping season. Instant relief from nasal congestion anytime, anywhere. Need more convincing? Click the banner below and get a free sample. Breathe Right. Get your strip on. Use as directed. 
Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.